We just started last week. A series in the book of Acts, and uh, we return there uh, this morning. Acts chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 12. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are gentlemen coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and you wave, get their attention, they'll put a Bible in your hand, and you can follow along this morning hearing the Word, but then also reading it. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, God, your Creator, wants everyone to own a Bible and to know the Bible, and so make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. We're going to pick things up in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. And uh, some of you might be a little bit alarmed and thinking I'm going to preach uh, the same sermon as last week because we're going to read the same passage. So I reserve the right to do that at a future date. Um, and it'll slip my mind, and, and, uh, but it won't be today. Now, when he, that is Jesus, had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. His ascension into heaven, as we noticed last week. And while they, that is the apostles, looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, that is the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. Jesus, on the night before your crucifixion, you cried out to the Father, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And we thank you for truth. We thank you for the power of truth. We thank you for the necessity of truth, Lord. We thank you for the beauty and the preciousness of truth. And we thank you that you have given us a big book that is filled with truth that's going to outlive the heavens and the earth. Well, Lord, we've listened to a lot of lies this week, a lot of indoctrination from the world and from the media. Our own heart has participated in it. We've been drawn left and right and up and down. And now, Lord, bring us back to the truth and take the truth that is found in these verses and make them alive to us and give them a living place in our living relationship with you. Lord, we pray that you bless John and Linda and their ministry and missionary outreach to Cambodia and the greatness of the need that is in that country. And we pray that today would be an extra special day in response to our prayers. We pray, too, Lord, for those that are serving all of these missionaries in Austria this week. Give them joy. Give them strength, Lord. Give them a torrent of living water coming out of their innermost being to bless and be a blessing, Lord. Keep them well and strong. And, Lord, let them learn from you all that this trip is about for them as well. We pray for these needs in our children's ministry. We love our children. We love them to be discipled. 
raised up as the next generation, Lord. Some of them we have for just one Sunday or one Wednesday. Some we have for years. We thank you for all of that. And we pray that you would touch the hearts within our body to quickly meet these needs, Lord, and then to experience your power as you prosper us as we take these steps into the place that you are calling us. We ask that you would meet these needs, Lord. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this passage of Scripture, the apostles have just witnessed the ascension of Jesus up into heaven, we're told in verse 10. And we're told that as Jesus ascended into heaven, they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up. And the Greek verb that is used there, you can imagine, if you've ever done this as a kid, surely all of us have done it as a kid, and you get this balloon and it's filled up with helium and maybe you're coming from the fair or Disneyland. If you're coming from Disneyland and you lose one of those balloons, it's like about a million dollars. So you really want to hold on to those. But they weren't a million dollars when I was a kid. But you'd let the balloon go or sometimes we would, on a windy spring day, we would buy several rolls of string and then just let the kite go out as far, just a cheap old little cross kite, get it out there as far as, as it could go, and rather than reel it all the way back in, we would just let go of it or cut it and then just watch it, and you would try and follow it as long as you could follow it with your eyes. And there's that, that's kind of the picture that's being expressed here with the apostles, and I mean, you can understand it, can't we? That's not a balloon. That's not a kite. That's their Savior who has ascended up into heaven, and the indication of the Greek language is that they stand there watching, not only till they can't see him any longer, but long after that. You think about the emotion they must have felt. They've been prepared for it for 40 days by Jesus. And yet, how could you be adequately prepared for the moment? What he had become to mean to them for three and a half years. And yes, he trained them, he equipped them, he got them ready for what is called the church age and all. But now their friend, now their Lord is in heaven. And the sorrow that must have filled their heart, the anxiousness that could fill their heart concerning the future now without him being there uh, physically and the shock and the awe over all of it and the whole idea of what is going to happen next. And what they needed at that moment in time was they needed a word from heaven. You ever find yourself in a place in life like that where Nothing is going to answer anything for you except a word from heaven. All of the emotions, all of the thoughts, all of the churning, and they need a word from heaven. And that's exactly what they got in verses 10 and 11. And the messengers of that word from heaven were two angels. They're described as being in white apparel, 
And the disciples are just so fixed on the ascension of Jesus, they don't even notice that two angels have joined them. Now, that's considerable concentration. And the word that God had for them was twofold there in verse 11. And the first was in the form of an exhortation. This same Jesus who has come up, uh, who has taken up from you into heaven, was so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And so the first exhortation, rather, in the form of a question, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? That's the exhortation. The second was an encouragement. The same Jesus who has taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And I want to look at those two words from heaven to the disciples and to us, beginning with the encouragement that this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And here we have the encouragement to the apostles, but it is also an encouragement to us that Jesus is coming again one day, that Jesus is going to one day return to this earth. Well, that's kind of uh, common knowledge for some of us uh, in this room, but not everybody in the body of Christ, not everybody in the room may realize that Jesus not only came into the world 2,000 years ago, but he promised to one day return to the earth a second time, an event that is known as his second coming. It is Olivet Discourse. This was his great teaching immediately before the cross. He declared concerning himself at his second coming, and they, that is the world, will see the Son of Man coming on clouds, on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And the angels here, just as Jesus, they declared that just as Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives, so too at his second coming, he is going to descend or return to New York City. No, no, it's Sao Paulo. No, he's going to return to the Mount of Olives. Zechariah chapter 14 speaks of the fact that in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which faces Jerusalem from the east and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east and west making a great valley. Half of the mountain shall move to the north and half of it toward the south and this great split will occur in the Mount of Olives at his second coming and then Jesus will proceed from that eastern side of, of the city of Jerusalem and enter in and begin his thousand-year reign of Christ. It's always an uh, awesome thing to me to visit the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem on a trip to Israel and among other biblical events that happen at the Mount of Olives, it is interesting to stand there and to realize this is the place that Jesus ascended into heaven from, and we're standing right here. And then also to realize that the Mount of Olives that you are standing on is waiting for the touch of one particular foot in the future. The foot of Jesus, when he touches upon it at his second coming, and then all of these events occur as he then begins to establish his kingdom age, the thousand-year reign of Christ. It's an awesome sight to be. Now, seven years 
before his second coming at the end of his second coming occurs at the end of the great tribulation Jesus is going to return not to the earth but he's going to return in the skies what's called the rapture he's going to snatch away up his church he's going to rapture Christians immediately prior to the seven-year tribulation period because that period of is a time of God pouring his wrath out upon the world and the Bible says that because we put our faith in Christ uh, we are not appointed under wrath so he's going to remove us before that seven-year period of judgment and Jesus spoke of it this way in John chapter 14 he said let not your heart be troubled you believe in God believe also in me and my father's house are many mansions if it were not so I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also and where I go you know and the way you know Paul described the rapture in 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 in this way for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel with the trump of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus shall we ever be with the Lord hip hip hooray and then John uh, Paul said uh, therefore comfort one another with these words the rapture of the church the removal of God's people supernaturally before the time of season of judgment upon the earth is a great comfort to us that Jesus is coming to receive us out of here I think that some of us heard it's been several years ago Tommy Ice who's a doctor and he's famous for his teaching related to end times but we were in this very room watching a series of videos having to do with the end times and his subject was the rapture and he came out he's a southern gentleman and you're just right at ease soon as he starts to talk and and he said uh, he said how many problems in your life tonight would be solved by the rapture well we all laughed I mean we weren't even in the same room I'm in this room and I'm watching it on a some kind of a you know transmission while it was being done live and I laughed every problem in our life will be solved at the rapture of the church when we're taken into the glory of heaven by Jesus himself well the Bible not only teaches that Jesus is coming again but it also gives us a very very thorough description of what the world is going to be like when he does what the world's going to be like morally what it's going to be like spiritually what it's going to be like uh, geopolitically what it's going to be like physically and this morning I want to just provide a very very short primer on prophetic signs of Jesus Jesus's return kind of as a review for some of uh, you but also as a uh, introduction to the subject uh, for others that are new to all of it everybody hears about this for the first time sometime as a Christian before we start I want to say that everything that I'm about to declare to you from God's Word is signs of, of Jesus's soon return all of these things are intended as an encouragement to us I don't know if you're something like me you know you start to read about the signs of uh, Jesus's return and some of those signs are a little dismal in the physical uh, realm but they're never intended to be that at all in our lives 
as, as Christians. They're to remind us that when we see these prophecies being fulfilled all around us, that we aren't paralyzed by the events that we're seeing physically, but that they would be a constant reminder that Jesus is coming back soon. How I love to talk with Christians, where sometimes you talk with Christians and it's like they've got a, um, a CNN or Fox News or ABC. I'm not picking on anyone in particular. It's like they got a news IV in. And it's like, so they corner me someplace and they're going to tell me every bad thing that happened in the world that week that they saw. And it's like, okay, 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 okay. Now I got to get away from you. Okay, okay. Because they never get to the place where, isn't that something? The Lord must be coming any old time now. They're, they're so influenced by the events, but they're not processing it spiritually. And then there's other people that come up and they'll say, hey, did you hear about what happened over there? Yeah, I happen to hear about that. Boy, is the Lord coming back soon. Right, that's about as much of the news as I can bear before I am reminded of what I'm supposed to be reminded of concerning that. And so it reminds all of us that his return for us is near so that for us as Christians living in the world that's nearing Jesus' return, we don't fall prey to this terminal case of the ain't it awfuls all around us, but rather we call, all of these events cause us to look and say, uh, as Jesus said, to look up knowing that our redemption draws nigh. And so these prophecies are given to us not to say, listen, um, I'm giving you these prophecies so you've got a heads up on it so you can start worrying months ahead of time the world is worrying. It doesn't give us any heads up like this at all to, for, for further worry. The prophecies are given in, in order to comfort us and with the intention of reminding us that this world is not out of control. It is fully under God's control, and it is moving toward His predetermined end. And I'll tell you to know the Scriptures and to read the headlines of today's newspaper, whatever form the newspaper takes for you these days, is to be reminded of that. And this God-appointed end is a wonderful end for every child of God. The signs of Jesus' return morally in the world, they're listed most significantly probably in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And uh, our guys up in the booth are going to put that up on the um, screen for you. You can turn to it as well. Um, but it should be coming any time. There we go. How about that? Let's read the passage. But know this, that in the last days, that's an interesting phrase, perilous times will come. You say, oh, boy, what's, what's it going to... And then look at the description. Sometimes we can read a list like this and say, it doesn't seem so perilous to me. Ah... That's because of conforming processes that are going on sometimes. But God looks at the world his own way, doesn't he? Perilous times will come. And then here's the description. For men will be lovers of themselves. The world is going to become increasingly self-occupied, self-consumed. Self-love will become the love even greater than a love for God. 
greater than a love for our fellow man. The problem is, and of course selfishness is so nurtured within our particular culture, but all around the world, is that ultimately if it just keeps on going, it becomes, uh, we become like animals. And it becomes dog-eat-dog, dog, and it ends up with a world that you don't want to live in. And so we see that, verse 2, check. We see it increasing in our world every day. Men will be lovers of money. And morally, the world is going to become materialistic. Money is going to become more important to people uh, than uh, God or even other people. I remember I was a new Christian, and I, one of the guys that really ministered to me, I was never really a country western kind of uh, song, uh, you know, follow that kind of music, but B. B. J. Thomas got to know the Lord right about that same time, and I owned everything that he recorded, and he had one song. It just really all of them ministered to me, and he had one song that was called... Uh, using things and loving people, that's the way it ought to be. And then he contrasted it with, um, uh, it's been a while since I've heard the song, using things and loving people. Then he said, talked about using people and loving things, and the whole song is that what happens when all of that gets turned upside down. And we see it around us today. Men will become boasters, braggarts. You know, bragging used to be like a bad thing. Now it's like... Man, you, it, everybody's trash-talking and bragging, and now you can tweet it out, and you can do all these different ways of being a braggart. And the culture has become that right before our eyes, within a generation. Proud, blasphemers. People will use increasingly their speech in order to hurt other people. Disobedient to parents, rebellion against authority, all authority, God's authority, uh, uh, against parental authority will mark the moral uh, condition of the world in the last days. We see that all around the world. People will be unthankful, ungrateful. It's just like who you, you know, everything that we have, our very next breath we're going to breathe, God has given to us. The tuna sandwich we eat, that tuna came from him, and he created the ocean that allowed the tuna to live in, and you can take it to an egg salad sandwich if you'd like and all. And God provides all of these things, the clothes that we wear, the blessings that are ours, and yet in the last days, unthankful and ungrateful, both toward God and toward man, unholy, Unloving, that's an interesting word there because in the original language it's astorgos, which literally means without natural affection, as it's translated in the New King James. This is the abandonment. Astorgos love is the love that holds the family unit together. It's the love of uh, kind of the maternal love of the mother for the child, the child for the mother the paternal love of the father for the child and the child for the father. It's the glue that holds the family unit together. And he says in the last days that that, that particular love is going, to be, is going to disappear. And we see uh, the damage that is the result of that. It's the love that holds the family unit together. And we see how the family unit is in such trouble today. People will be unforgiving, slanderers, I mean, false accusations being made all of the time. And there's so much uh, new media. It used to be, you know, if we're going to slander somebody or backbite somebody, I had to do it like with my own mouth. Now, now you just need two thumbs and, and you got an audience of six million people and uh, instantly. And uh, 
There's entire sections of the media today who live off of slandering other people. It's awful. Without self-control, in other words, people will become more and more undisciplined, brutal. That means savage. I tell you, people, it's, it's getting savage. And the people's treatment of one another, you look at it around the world, not just in the United States, despisers of good. In other words, people will look down on good. They'll even despise good. Imagine, but it's happening before our eyes. Traitors, nobody's word will mean anything. Headstrong, that's people being reckless, haughty. That's the idea of being mega proud. And then Lovers of pleasure rather than loving God, where the whole world, the focus of the world, will be an uh, adulation, a worship of pleasure and experiencing of pleasure rather than uh, pursuing and experiencing God. And what you have here in this passage is basically an abandonment of a biblical morality, and that is undeniably the world that we live in. God says morally in the last days there will be a wholesale worldwide abandonment of biblical morality. But the problem is, is that when you abandon uh, a biblical morality, you don't get to do that in a vacuum. There's consequences to that. And always to abandon God's commandments of right and wrong is always to introduce instability into a situation or into a life or into an organization or into the world. So the more the world moves away from God's definitions of morality and his right and wrong, then the world is, as a result, going to destabilize. And that's what we see all around us today. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus further uh, described the moral condition of the last days by referencing Noah and Lot from the Old Testament book of Genesis. And Genesis reveals in those days that the days of Noah, the days of Lot, they were days of great wickedness. They were marked by widespread sexual immorality, widespread unnatural sexual practices, including homosexuality. But it was also a time when violence became very, very commonplace all around the world. And then interestingly enough, the Bible records that during those times, man gave himself to evil imaginations continually. That's something. Jesus said it's going to be like that in the last days. People will give their minds, they will give themselves to evil imaginations continually. Think about what flows out into the eye gate, into the ear gate, into the mind. And none of us are supposed to be deceived whatsoever we sow, we also reap. But you think about it in terms of entertainment, what is on the television, the movies that are being made, the music that is being made, the video games so much, and so much on and on. And there's good and there's virtuous things in all of those genres. 
But I don't think that anybody can deny that these areas are today, you see so much that's coming forth from people who have given themselves to evil imaginations continually. I um, Most of what I watch on television is uh, sports. So, but there are times where I'm just watching some kind of, and I'm, I'm not like some, I'm not some kind of a prude or some super spiritual. I, un, I understand what liberties people have. I also know what the line is where something becomes sin and all. So. I don't watch things like with this critical eye of finding something wrong with every single thing in the world. But some of these commercials that come on for new shows that are being launched, are you kidding me? I'm grabbing that remote so fast to get on another channel for the next 30 to 60 seconds because I don't want it in me. This isn't marginal stuff. This is evil. And so I'm trying to flip over to ESPN2, get to another channel on it. But it's worth stopping and thinking about the darkness, the evil that is being sown and readily consumed in the world today. And Jesus said it would mark the last days. He said it would be a time when the standard of right and wrong would be almost completely wiped out. Evil would be called good, and good would be called evil. Well, you know, this new morality, so to speak, it cannot continue indefinitely because it will ultimately make a hell out of the earth. So something has to happen when things are trending so strongly in this direction. You either have to have a revival occur or you're going to have the rapture of the church. Now, in Matthew uh, chapter 24, Jesus gave us additional signs of the nearness of his return that he likened to birth pangs. He said it's going to be a time of widespread religious deception. He said many are going to come in my name and they're going to say, I am the Christ, and they're going to deceive many. He said it will be a time when the world is going to be filled with wars and rumors of wars. That's the world that we live in. The world that we live in is at war or rumors of the next war that could break out any day in some particular region of the world. The whole world is on fire. And then not only, uh, then there will be nations rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. In other words, it won't just be nations fighting one another, but there will be uh, insurrections, there will be parties and groups within nations that are fighting for the control of the nation and turning it into civil war. This makes up a huge part of the world that we're living in today. Famine will occur. Of course, when you have war and these kind of things, famine is an inevitable result. Pestilence and disease, Jesus spoke about the fact that that will become more prevalent. I don't know how many of you watched and followed that Ebola outbreak that was, happened, the most recent one, in uh, northwest Africa where um, we brought patients in from there into the United States the first time that we had ever done that. 
and the concern of the international community over their ability to contain this Ebola outbreak there in that part of Africa, or would it just begin to sweep uh, all over that continent and ultimately all around the world. Anybody that follows this kind of stuff, and uh, you would have to be a, a certain personality, I think, to do it, but there's always articles continually on the concern by the scientific community for the next outbreak and how these superbugs are developing themselves against our best antibiotics and these kind of things and saying, you know, it's inevitable. Something is going to jump the line. It's going to jump the fence, and we're going to be uh, in trouble. Jesus spoke about the last day's earthquakes in various places. And in other words, not just in California and the Pacific Rim where you expect them to occur. You don't want them to occur, but you expect them to occur. Now you've got earthquakes in Ohio and New York and all kinds of places in the world that are known to be earthquake centers. Some of these things you look at and you say, well, you know, uh, these things have always really happened in human history, and so what makes it so special in terms of a, a sign of Jesus' return? He likened to birth pangs, to contractions. When a woman is giving birth, the contractions come closer and closer and closer. It isn't that these things in the last days will be unique to the last days, but they will come one upon another, upon another, upon another with such a frequency that it creates a crisis because you can't, you don't have the time to get over one crisis, draw a breath, and then prepare for the next one. And he said, this is going to mark the last days. And all of these things, of course, they're part of our daily lives. They're part of the daily news headlines and so much so that it's very easy to begin just to get used to them and say, well, this is just the way that the world is and not realize that there's something wrong with what's happening in the world all around us and uh, that the world would begin to destabilize politically and spiritually and materially and physically. We're seeing that occur all around us in the world today. And Jesus, though, he said, when you see it, don't be troubled by these things, but rather re look up and say, my redemption, that is Jesus, draws near. And the Lord will be completely faithful to every one of his promises to us between this day that we're alive and the day of the rapture of the church. As unstable as the world may become or our own individual lives may become, heaven is completely stable and will remain as stable as ever. The third thing I want to take a look at for a moment is from the uh, speaking a little bit about Europe and what the Bible says about the last world-ruling empire that is going to be a part of the earth before Jesus' return. The prophetic Old Testament book of Daniel speaks of a final world-ruling empire that will arise out of the old Roman Empire, and the old Roman Empire is Europe. And from that uh, old Roman Empire, this uh, rising up of this last final uh, world-ruling empire of man uh, that we know from other passages in the Scripture that it will become a world-ruling empire under the hand of the Antichrist. He will dominate the world through Europe 
during the seven-year tribulation period, and Jesus will then bring that final world-ruling empire to an end with his second coming. Uh, and I refer you to all of our Sunday morning messages that we've given it with an in-depth handling of all of these passages on the end times if you want to dig into a little bit more carefully in our media page there and in the, um, uh, on, on the website. But the, the final world-ruling empire, Daniel wrote, will consist of a confederation of ten nations. Some of them are going to be weak, some of them are going to be strong, who will then turn over their power and authority to the Antichrist, who will in turn make them into the economic and military center of the world. And today you look at Europe, most of Europe is united together in a confederation that's known as the European Union, and uh, it is essentially an economic union with a common currency called the euro. And perhaps some of you have, be, have even been following in the recent months here, and they just averted the crisis where there was a great struggle within the European uh, unity, uh, Union, and uh, they were working so hard to avert the collapse of their currency altogether uh, because of the fact that Greece was going to default upon their loans. And here is little old Greece, uh, not that dominant in the world at this point in time in human history, but if they had defaulted on those loans, it had the potential to sink the euro as a currency in the world or to really uh, do some significant damage. And so much so, you've, you, the analysis surrounding all of that at the time, many monetary experts, they look at the current makeup of the EU and the struggle that the EU w has gone through to try to avert that, that collapse on the basis of, of Europe, and they see how fragile other members of the EU are financially, Portugal, Spain, Italy, and so forth, and they declare that the future, the, the current form uh, uh, of the EU and the euro cannot survive indefinitely. Now, if you've got a bunch of euros at home, I'm not telling you to sell them. I'm just saying it can't occur indefinitely. They know this, whatever this system is that's going on in Europe, it cannot manage indefinitely. Some change will have to occur for sustainability. And in following all of this, it's important to realize that all of this lines up with biblical prophecy. Europe will not become the economic powerhouse of the world until the Antichrist comes on the scene as the first event of the Great Tribulation. He is the, break, the breaking of the first seal of the seven seals of Revelation is the revelation of the Antichrist. Europe will not become the economic powerhouse of the world until it's led by the Antichrist himself during the tribulation period. So their problems are going to continue on a lot of levels until they become so acute at some point that the member nations will give their authority over to a man that they don't know is the Antichrist but looks like he has the answers to lead them into economic greatness in a world that may be in the midst of economic crisis. Again, as the world destabilizes, as the Lord's 
the return draws near, people will get more and more desperate for any kind of a solution. Any leader who appears to have charisma, he has an authoritative tone, he has uh, answers that looks like they're the answers to the problems, and they will be willing to turn uh, great power over to such a man at such a time. And the Antichrist will possess all of those things. We will not witness that as Christians because we have to be gone before those seals begin to be broken uh, during the Great Tribulation period. It's interesting that during the Tribulation period that the Antichrist is going to establish a one-world um, economic system. Nobody will be able to buy or sell without a mark of some kind, some kind of an identification on their right hand or on their uh, on their forehead. All buying and selling will be done by virtue of this mark and uh, as opposed to cash or credit cards or checks or anything like what we use today. And only in our lifetime as Christians has something like this become possible. Uh, we have what is, for years now, they continue to develop what's known as the very chip. It's as small as a, a grain of white rice and uh, used in animals and uh, experiments on now using it in human beings. It's not the mark of the beast, but uh, it shows the conditioning that prepares for that. And the idea, the selling point behind it, of course, is that here you have, um, you put that chip somewhere in, you know, in the arm of your child so that if anything ever happened, they'd be able to identify your child. Um, if someone was the victim of a crime, they'd be able to identify them by virtue of the chip. Sometimes you have someone who's a little bit older and they're dealing with dementia, they're dealing with Alzheimer's, and they wander off and they can't tell anyone who they are or how to get back. And a chip like that would be very helpful in figuring out who they are. Somebody's in an accident in a car and they're unconscious in the car. And if they had a chip that had their medical history on that the paramedics could move to, we all see the advantages of this uh, this kind of thing and the selling points of, uh, of all of, uh, of this. And interestingly, you know, with this, uh, you, you know, the, the having a chip with that kind of information on and all, the concern of one day having a mark uh, on us or some kind of a means that allows us to get rid of all of our money and it just gets handled in this way. Nobody can steal from me. They've got to take my head or my right arm. Uh, in and scan it or something. So it, it makes us more financially uh, secure. It, you know, appears to do that rather than everybody trying to buy insurance for their accounts being stolen, and that's in the news all the time and these kind of things. And, and so all of this is growing. And today, the concern over the loss of privacy over issues like this, it just diminishes with each generation. So every generation is more technologically advanced and more technologically connected. And the more that we are, the more that we just accept the fact that our lives are being watched and everything about our lives is known. But every generation, for me, it's an affront. <laughs> it's an affront. I hate it. It's like, can I go to a park somewhere and nobody knows that I'm here? Oh, there's the drone. Listen, I'm, just, I'm not saying that there, I've seen a drone tracking me to the park. I'm just, but 
It's amazing where these people are buying their own drones and taking pictures, you know. So, but but um, concerning our cell phones, I mean, you, you not only can our phone's cellular network keep a record of our location at all times and then keep it, maintain it, they must do that. They are required to do that. How easy would it be to take the technology that's in a phone and just use it as a chip in a human body and, and follow everybody, every move that they make all around the world? Every movement online on the computer is noted. All the sites that we go to, how much time we spend on those sites, what times we go there, we're profiled on the basis of it. You ever buy anything online? You buy a pair of Nike tennis shoes? That's the only ads you're going to see for the next 30 years is Nike popping up every time you turn your computer on. You, think you don't think I'm being watched or we're being watched, the patterns and all of that, that kind of stuff is uh, going on. Many years ago, I, um, I was amazed at the end of the year they sent me this uh, thing on, um, uh, with my credit card. So we're talking about ancient kind of technology. But they sent me a year-end statement of every expenditure that I had made, where I had made it, when I had made it, the time that I had made it, and just looking at that, because I'm such a spendthrift, just kidding, but just looking at that, they, were a, they could fashion my life for a year with that. Now you add the phone, now you add the Internet, now you add Facebook, now you add uh, GPS, now you add what's on your car for tracking, now you add the toll stations that you go through, and if businesses can track our every move, so can our, the government, and ultimately the Antichrist will do that. And you know what's amazing about it? A hundred years ago, this would have seemed utterly fantastic. It would have just seemed crazy that such a thing could be possible. But it's the world you and I live in. And it's a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And finally, I close with this. I just want to make mention of a prophesied geopolitical makeup of the Middle East in the last days. It's recorded in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. And we're told that one of the great signs of the last days will be the rebirth of the nation of Israel as a nation into human history once again. That happened on May 14, 1948. No nation had ever been without a homeland for 2,600 years and regained a homeland. It is unique in human history, and God had prophesied that that would occur, and it occurred against all odds. I have commentaries in my office that were written by godly men in the realm of prophecy and written before 1948, and they just kept saying, Watch Israel. Israel's going to become a nation again. Israel's going to become a nation again. And what they looked ahead to, we look back on as a daily reality for us. And it's a miracle that we should never, ever lose uh, sight of. The Bible also declares that in the last days, Israel is going to be surrounded by enemies and going to be attacked by a confederation of nations in the last days. There will be a major military power to her north. Russia is there today. 
Persia will attack her. That's modern-day Iran. Iran has been in the news an awful lot for the last few years because of their determination to develop a nuclear weapon and coupled with their publicly stated determination to utterly destroy Israel. Russia has been the great help to Iran in the developing of not only her nuclear capacities and those nuclear plants, but also supplying her with some of the most sophisticated military weaponry in the world. So it says the enemies that will one day attack Israel <clears throat> will be this nation that sits to the utter north of Israel, Russia today, Iran, northern Sudan, Libya, and Turkey. And each one of those nations has a long anti-Semitic history, and with the exception of Russia, they're all united by a common religion called Islam. And Ezekiel says that one day they will attack Israel like a storm with overwhelming force. It, they will look at it like we're going to swallow up uh, Israel like a piece of cake. God then rises up and he will destroy those invading armies by the use of natural forces and miracles. They will begin to fight among one another, and then this military campaign that looked like such a cinch will then turn into an immense defeat. You know, one of the provocations for that kind of a, an event that can occur and, and all of the ensuing events happening, Israel continues to this day and is warning the world continually against adopting this current nuclear deal with Iran, emphasizing the danger that Iran is not only to Israel but to the entire region of the Middle East if they gain the nuclear weapon. And since the leaders of Iran have spoken openly of their desire for the destruction of Israel, Israel cannot sit by and wait for them to develop the weapons and, uh, and destroy their children and their grandchildren. Ultimately, Netanyahu is, is warning the world that they will have to attack these facilities militarily. And in doing so, this attack upon Iran, it is so easy to see how Russia could then join her ally in the attack on Israel in order to then expand her influence in the region and then be readily uh, joined by these other Muslim nations. The implication uh, of, this, uh, of this biblically with a massive military defeat of Russia, a deep blow to the uh, m most heavily weaponized and militarily aggressive uh, Muslim nation in, in the Middle East, Iran, with this defeat of, of that invading army, Russia will be set back in a huge way militarily. So will Iran and her allies. And then for reasons that I don't, can't get into this morning, the rapture of the church appears to occur either right before or after this battle. And if the rapture occurs immediately before this battle, as the scriptures indicate that it might, then the major military power of the world that would be most affected by the rapture would be the United States. Interestingly, prophetically, the USA is not mentioned in the Bible and does not respond to this attack uh, by those nations against Israel. It isn't unlikely that the rapture would leave the U.S. 
in a sufficient disarray militarily and beyond to meet the uh, attack with more than a verbal protest. And then with Russia defeated, the Middle East, the uh, United States, the world's current superpower, regrouping after the rapture, it will allow Europe to rise to the top and to become the final world ruling empire economically and militarily under the Antichrist until the second coming of Jesus. I don't say that it will happen, but it could happen as quick as that and as easy as that, and that scenario sits and could happen before we're eating din dinner tonight. Everything is set in play. You look at the, this whole scenario and you look at it and you realize not only the amazing description of the nations who will invade Israel and their hostility toward Israel today, but then the nations that are left out that you would think would join the invasion. There's no mention of Saudi Arabia except that she will protest verbally but not, uh, not do anything. Um, you have no mention of Iraq is, is invading, no mention of Syria invading, no mention of Jordan invading, no mention of Egypt invading. And the reason that, that they, if that attack were to happen today that they wouldn't join it is because they are at odds. They either have diplomatic relationships or peace treaties with Israel today or they are currently at odds with Iran. The point I'm trying to make is that it, it, the, what you and I see geopolitically in the Middle East and we wake up to every day is a prophetic marvel down to the smallest nations in terms of being set for a great event in uh, the prophetic uh, calendar. And so, whatever the scenario, the world that you and I are living in is just an exact fit like never before in history. And it's amazing. And it is a sign that Jesus is coming soon. So perhaps you've been uh, following this um, concerns in the, uh, the and, and I'm aware of the clock, so that puts you at ease uh, somewhat. But the new arms race that's happening in the world and it's in the early stages and what is it? Robots. Robots. You have the military and military experts coming together here in recent weeks, the last three months and they are very, very concerned about the develop of robot armies. So Star Wars wasn't that far off, was it? It's happened within a generation, and it's real. And the idea is, as the experts look at it and say, with the aggressiveness of China on this particular front right now and forcing the rest of the world to then follow suit because no one can let another nation develop an army of robots and be caught without their own army of robots. So Japan is moving. Uh, the United States is moving, Russia is moving, it's the new arms race. And one military expert said concerning this, expressing his concern, an expert on all of this, he said, if we do not stop this right now, if we develop robot military machines, man and every man and woman will be defenseless against what we are able to produce. You say, why, why bring that up? Just to depress you. 
Now, here's why it fascinates me. Here's why it fascinates me. Because when Jesus comes back at his second coming, and there's a great army that comes out of Europe, the Antichrist, and there's a great army that comes out of Africa, and a great army that comes out of the Orient, and they come to fight against one another, and they come to a valley called Megiddo, and when they come to fight against one another and to destroy one another, when they see Jesus returning, their hatred for him is greater than their hatred for one another, and they turn completely now to fight him. And Jesus, with a word from his mouth, wipes out all of those armies. And the Bible says the blood will flow as high as a horse's bridle. They say that they'll have these robotic armies in place and on the field in less than 20 years. And yet by the time when the Battle of Armageddon occurs, it occurs before those armies are developed, when men still constitute the armies that are being put on the field. And so the angels give them the encouragement of Jesus' return, and then the exhortation, men of Galilee, why do you stand up gazing up into heaven? You've got work to do. And the knowledge of the rapture of the church being right around the corner, that it's intimate, it could happen at any time in our lives as Christians, it produces a needed influence for purity in our life because we want to be found pure when this happens. It also produces an urgency in our heart to reach people with the gospel and to expand the kingdom. When the world gets as shaky as the world is getting shaky, people start asking questions. They're afraid. They're concerned. It's an opportunity to share the gospel with people. And so we don't get paralyzed by all of this. We realize, wow, people must be freaking out even more than ever, and they're either looking for answers or they're getting more loaded than ever, but we've got the answer as Christians. And so being busy about the Lord's business, occupying until he comes, and the third effect of that knowledge of his return is that it is a great comfort to us. That God is in charge of my life. God is in charge of human history and he is returning. And so all of this, not intended to put us in any kind of despair at all, uh, but concerning the world that we live in, but a reminder as we see it that look at this and look at what the Bible says. I'm going to look up because my redemption draws nigh. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, it's time to get saved. And it's time to receive the forgiveness of sins and to get on the right side of God, to get on the right side of heaven, to get on the right side of eternity by putting your faith in Jesus and begin a relationship with God. The stakes are so incredibly high, and it's important for you to make that decision today. There are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front. They love you. They care about your soul, and they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship today. It's interesting, just one more interesting thing. You say, you're not that interesting. Well, just one more interesting thing. So I'm watching ESPN, and they got this ad for Ant-Man. Is, is that what he's called, Ant-Man, the new superhero? Anybody know? Or, or, 
Is it Ant-Man is, is the name? Okay, great. I don't want to call him by the wrong name. You don't want to be on the wrong side of that guy from the ad I saw. But I read an article a few weeks earlier, and it was about this guy that considers himself to be a very, very serious filmmaker. And uh, or you wouldn't want to see any film he makes, but he makes films about life, you know, and how, how he views all, all of it. And he's just infuriated at what people are going to the movies and seeing. He said they're, they're going to see these things that aren't real. It's all about Iron Man, and it's all about Superman and the Fantastic Four. And I mean, he's just livid about the whole thing. He didn't even know about Ant-Man at that time. I don't know what the, he'd have gone in the article on it. And he said, nobody's making movies about real life. Everybody's going to see these fantasies to watch things that aren't real. And, of course, film has always been a means of escape. But as I listened to the article, and his observations are very, very true, these people racing to look at these things, and I think it's a little bit more than just escapism. I think that people living in the world today, because I've never seen such a concentration of these kind of films, all at once, all at once. It's about all you can go see, I guess. But it might be a reflection at how many people look at the world and how scary it's becoming, even the little bit that they know. And they want to have even some hope that there is someone on the side of good that is going to win at the end of all of this. And if they can't find a real hope, then they'll go find one for three hours in a movie theater. And I tell you, I believe that. I believe that. But there is a hero. There is a super someone who is greater than every problem that we face in this world and that this world faces. And one day he is going to come back and he is going to set it all right. But he is not pretend. He is real. And he is the very Son of God, and his name is Jesus. He's the one that is at the end of your search, the end of your journey. He's the only one that is greater than all of the needs in your life. You come forward after the service and receive him into your life and then experience his power in your life and the reality of it. And he would love to do it if you give them just the chance. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Mm -hmm. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And Jesus, not only that you ascended into heaven and all that that means to us and the implications for us, but then all that your return is intended to accomplish in us as well.
And we pray, Lord, that as we navigate this world as Christians and we see all of the things that are going on, never leave us just in that little box of seeing it in the natural man or seeing it in the way that another human being could see it. But always, Lord, would you be the lifter of our heads and remind us that it's just further evidence that you, Jesus, our redemption draws nigh. And Lord, as the bride of Christ, as that song says, waiting for her groom, Lord, we are waiting for you. Now keep us busy about your business until that day occurs, Lord. We think about these needs in the children's ministry again. Fill those and more, Lord. Keep us busy with your gospel, looking at men and women and knowing that they're seeing these things and being freaked out about the directions and the, de the, the decisions that people are making in power all around them and to let them know there is a hero, there is a great one, there is a Savior who is real that they can turn to. And we ask these things of you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.